0: Ruchim habayim everyone, welcome, 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 welcome to an evening of dialogue with one of my favorite rabbis, one of my favorite people, Rabbi David Wolpe of Sinai Temple. Um, Rabbi Wolpe is the Max Webb Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple. Rabbi Wolpe previously taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in New York, the American Jewish University in Los Angeles, Hunter College and UCLA. Rabbi Wolpe, um, a weekly columnist for the New York Jewish Week and weekly Torah columnist for the Jerusalem Post. Rabbi Wolpe has been published and profiled in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Time, Newsweek, The Atlantic, and many, many more. He's been on the Today Show, Face the Nation, ABC This Morning, CBS This Morning. In addition, Rabbi Wolpe has appeared prominently in series on PBS, A&E, History Channel, and Discovery Channel and has engaged in widely watched public debates. Rabbi Wolpe, who has spoken in seminars, public and scholarly forums, and scholar-in-residence appearances hundreds of times all over the world, from Israel to India, the author of eight books, including the national bestseller, Making Lost Matter, Creating Meaning in Difficult Times. His new book is titled David, the Divided Heart. It was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Awards and has been optioned for a movie by Warner Brothers. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Wolpe. Uh, Rabbi, of all of your accolades, um, the most important that I aspire for, for my children, um, for my community, is that of being a mensch. And you carry that label proudly, um, modestly, and um, to welcome you into Park Avenue Synagogue is a deep honor for me. our community. Um, I remember when I was beginning my rabbinate, you are the rabbi of the synagogue in which I grew up in at Sinai Temple. You are my family's rabbi. Um, You have been a mentor to me over the years, both directly whenever I have needed to speak to someone and get counsel. You've always been there for me from day one. And um, at a distance, your rabbinate very much a model for me here at Park Avenue Synagogue. So it is a deep um, pleasure and honor to welcome you here.
1: So, first of all, I, I mean, I don't know exactly what to say to that. Um, other than that, I can't imagine, uh, obviously, I, I don't want to exaggerate the years between us, um, but I can not imagine a prouder feeling to see you as rabbi of Park Avenue, not only because you grew up, as you said, at Sinai, and uh, we shared a lot together, including your father was a president of the synagogue, and and I started doing high holiday services for singles on the third floor, and when I went downstairs to be the rabbi of the synagogue, guess who started doing the services upstairs on the third floor um, before he was stolen away by Park Avenue, Uh, but but I think that it's clear that, you know, you are a major rabbinic voice, not only in the conservative movement, but of our time. And so for you to say that means a lot. And I think you guys are unbelievably lucky, unbelievably lucky.
0: Um, Rabbi, the moment is an important one as you are in your final year of your rabbinate at Sinai Temple not your rabbinate. Please God, your contributions to the Jewish community will extend into the years to come, but you've made the announcement that you celebrated your last high holidays. So I'd like to focus the conversation as reflections on your rabbinate, as well as on the future of the rabbinate as a whole. So um, I wanna begin actually before the very beginning because um, we have a lot of Zion people here um, and they're very excited, not just because of how the Eagles are doing, but um, because you're here um, as as the son of uh, Rabbi Gerald Wolpe of blessed memory, one of um, the most distinguished rabbinic figures of the last century who led the zion community and i'm just wondering as um, you think back even before your rabbinate what were um, the lessons that um, you learned either explicitly or implicitly about serving a large congregation and how without turning this into a therapy session did the model or the shadow of your father's rabbinate either impel you towards or perhaps Prompt you to resist entering the rabbinate itself.
1: So, how much time you got? <laughs> um, I, is it okay? I'll address yeah, yeah. as opposed to turning my back to. You. First of all, um, it's, it, I want to start this by saying, for those of you who knew my father, um, and and of course for those of you who didn't, uh, my father was, and and all of. I have three brothers. They would all say in different words exactly what I'm saying the most wonderful of men he just was he was a fantastic human being he was at home he was in the synagogue he wasn't a perfect human being it's not like we didn't see that he had flaws but i gotta say as people went they were remarkably few Um, and and one of his one of his virtues was that his goodness didn't make you feel bad that is he wasn't the kind of good that you said oh i feel terrible that i'm not as good as he is He had a wicked sense of humor. He could laugh when you... I remember when I was a kid in yeshiva in Harrisburg, because I was born in Harrisburg, and I was in like third or fourth grade, and I learned, which is no longer true, so don't worry about it, but I learned at that time, if you turned the water off underneath the sink, that the water wouldn't work on the sink. This tells you what kind of kid I was. So I would turn the water off underneath the sink, and as I did, Rabbi Goldberg, who was the head of the yeshiva, walked into the bathroom. I thought my life was over. I was in third grade, this was the head of the yeshiva, seeing me turn off the water. So he made me go to his office and call my father. I will never forget this, I called my father and I said, oh dad, am I in trouble? And he cracked up. (laughs) He just laughed and laughed, and that's what my father was like. Um, I don't remember what happened after that, all I remember was that he laughed. But I never thought that I would be a rabbi um, and it never seemed to me. I thought my father was wonderful for being a rabbi, but who would want to do that? Uh, And then um, it really was, I sort of went to rabbinical school on spec. And the more that I was in the congregation, the more I realized that one of the lessons I learned from him, which is not necessarily a lesson that all modern rabbis will agree with um, is that my father to a great extent had a public self and a private self there are some rabbis who constantly have people over to their home he didn't he thought i belong to the synagogue when i'm out there but when i'm home i'm home Um, and that was how i structured my rabbinate but not every rabbi works that way and uh, congregations have different expectations of rabbis, But for me, at least, that allowed me to have the space, as I think it allowed him to have the space, to do other things that I wanted to do and to feel as though um, your role as a rabbi, it's very easy for your role as a rabbi to swallow you whole. Because when you see your lawyer in the Whole Foods, you don't say, oh, there is the lawyer. Or when you see the doctor, it's not usually there is the doctor unless something's bothering you. But when you see the rabbis, there's the rabbi. And therefore your role and your person can be very easily merged and inhabited. And my daughter, when she was young, said to me once, you know, daddy, I only like you in jeans and pajamas. Do you understand what she was saying? It's like when you put your suit on, then you become the rabbi. So I'm very grateful to him because it fit my personality that he taught me that you don't actually owe your congregation the entirety of who you are you owe them some of the best of who you are but some of the best of who you are you're allowed to keep for yourself and i think that that's um that's something and the reason i say this in part is it's something congregations need to hear because especially for children when i was a little kid and i would go over to other people's houses not the rosenfelds because jimmy rosenfeld is here and his parents like knew my parents. Um, but when I would go over to other people's houses, they would say, what's your name? I would say David Wolpe. They would say, are you Rabbi Wolpe's son? I would say, yes. They would say, you know, I used to keep kosher. <laughs> I would say, lady, I'm five years old. Like, take it up with my father. But that's part of the danger, is that the family gets swallowed as well. And that separation, I think, is really important to keep your and your family's um, boundaries and sanity, and I learned that from him. I learned a lot else, but I thought I would mention that.
0: No, I was worried about putting you in therapy. I feel like (laughs) I'm the one in therapy right now. Um, But um, Now, now you spent uh, the first part of your career, I think the first 10 years or so, um, not in congregational work, and I was thinking about that because I also um, there was a time that I thought I was going into academia, and, and Debbie and I had all our kids in Chicago and otherwise. Um, was that a moment uh, that you were resisting the inevitable pull of, or were you thinking that there are different ways to serve the Jewish people, and you might do it through scholarship as opposed to, um, or how did those It was those because years... for me,
1: at least, um, I had serious doubts that I was going to be good in a congregation because of the tendency that you just heard which is I like to be I'm as when I tell people that I'm asocial and they say no you're, you can't look at you you're not asocial I said nobody could have read as many books as I've read who doesn't like to spend a lot of time alone right that's what I means. if you're really a reader you have a certain isolating streak and and I've been a compulsive reader since I was a kid and so yeah I was worried about going into a congregation and I didn't want to do it except that we were about to have a child and I thought I was traveling a lot and I thought at least I'll be in the same bed every night. Um, having said that though, I want you to know it's been incredibly enriching and I don't, I don't regret it for a second. And, and it's because of the story. I've told many times I told it, and I, there was, this is on my, on Yom Kippur, I talked about some of these things to the congregation. And, and one of the things, uh, that, was a constant, my daughter used to make fun of this fact all the time is it would be Saturday night. And I would say, I can't believe I have to put a tuxedo on and go run to the Beverly Hilton or the Beverly Hills Hotel or the Beverly Wilshire or the Beverly and do this wedding. I just want to like sit here and read or watch Netflix. And she said, and then every time you'd come home and I would say, dad, how was the wedding? You go, it was great. I had such a great time because the interaction is actually wonderful and life-giving. And so I think that it was very good that I was forced out of my book lined room. It was good for me and I think it was good for my soul and, and I hope it was mostly good for the congregation.
0: Uh, and now in your uh, final year of serving Sinai Temple, what do you wish that someone had told you at the beginning uh, that might've made the journey uh, that much wiser, maybe um, avoided some of the rough edges. Um, what would be your advice now that you would have given yourself?
1: Well, I mean, if I, if I had the wisdom that I have now, I would say, don't worry, everything's going to be okay, which I didn't know at the time because, I, I mean, we, we went through, a, as you know, a couple bouts of cancer and so on, and I didn't know that everything would be okay. Um, but I would say that the other, the other part of it, which is just an inevitable part of living, is that the um, the you that you should try to, to tell time a little more by the calendar and not by the second hand. That is that the things that, that you think are overwhelming now, you actually will forget about in a month. And and you have to constantly remind yourself of that and try to take the eagle's eye view um, because If you get wrapped up in the controversy of the moment, this is why I tell people all the time, that's the difference between social media and reading books. If you read a history book, you're telling time by the calendar. If you read the news, you're telling time by the second hand. And things that you thought months ago were the most important things in the world, you don't even remember now. You don't even remember them. And the same thing is true in our personal lives. And so there is a certain... perspective that's really difficult to attain, that we all know we should attain, but it's really difficult to attain. And if I were, like, advising myself earlier, I would say all the things that you're about to worry about, the vast majority of them really, really won't matter. I mean, there's there's this story about Napoleon that he used to leave his mail unopened for three weeks. And then he would be thrilled to discover how much of it had already answered itself. And it's the same thing. But we don't do that now, especially not with email. So,
0: How do you, you know, I've prepared questions, but I think the more interesting ones are coming from my heart or coming from me um, and a projection of my anxieties here. How do you decide, um, looking back, where to get involved, where to put your thumb on this. I mean, some rabbis define themselves as, I'm the Israel rabbi. I'm going to change the conservative movement. I'm going to focus on the environment. I'm going to, you know, and and there are inevitably far more causes, worthy things that you could throw your personal and congregational capital behind than you possibly have time for, never mind the Saturday night wedding and the Shiva on Wednesday night and your desires to say current on reading. So those allocations of time, energy, and and political capital, how how do you make so those let determinations? Me, let me
1: quote the when I first came to Sinai, I interviewed a bunch of rabbis about how they ran their synagogues. And maybe the wisest rabbi either of us will ever know, Harold Scholweiss, who was a remarkable human being. Um, I remember when I told my, I asked my father if he knew Harold, so they had actually gone to school together, I didn't know when we we're friends. But when I came out to LA and I asked my father, do you know Harold Showeis? I said, he said, yes. I said, who is he? He goes, he's the most talented man in the American rabbinate. And he was probably right. Um, so I asked Shulwais like, tell me I, exactly that question. And he said, you have to ruthlessly focus on what you think is important, which means giving it about 10% of your time. And that's the reality for a congregational rabbi. So the only word that gives you freedom is no. And so when someone says, you you want to do this, you have to be able to say no. And and I think that this is the single, like, here's here's a structural problem with with the rabbinate, okay? You choose rabbis for, you know, one one of the fundamental personality traits is degree of agreeableness. Right? People are like some people are less agreeable than others. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right? You like people who go against the grain or whistleblowers or so on. People who saved people during that generally had a low degree of agreeableness. They didn't need to be liked. Right? You choose rabbis for a high degree of agreeableness. A pulpit rabbi who doesn't have a high degree of agreeableness is not going to last very long because if you don't care about how other people feel about you, You're going to be rude. You're going to be indifferent. You're going to be neglectful. You're not going to answer the phone call. You're not going to be there when the family needs you and you're gone. But then you want your rabbi to be able to lead and leading requires being disagreeable. And it's really hard for rabbis who are by nature and by training agreeable to tell people, I'm sorry, I know you want your kid to be bar mitzvah a week earlier than they're supposed to be, but no, You can't do that or whatever the issue is. So that's the other piece I think of advice. I think I would have given myself is don't be afraid of being more disagreeable Um, because in the end, if you don't have those boundaries, your, um, you, you get lost in everybody else's causes, but your own.
0: And. What sort of report card would you give yourself on not disagreeability, <laughs> but the um, this balancing act of um, uh, running a major institution, caring for the pastoral needs of a community? Uh, yeah, it's that joke, right? That we want our rabbi to be a scholar, to be engaged in civic affairs, to be at everyone's shiva, and you know, also to be an able fundraiser. I mean, is that another? Um, sort of structural flaw in the rabbinate itself that we are asking too much of, our, of you know, too many muscle groups, diverse right. muscle groups um, of, of this thing called a rabbi.
1: Well, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I said that you were so lucky, is it's not easy to get rabbis to be rabbis of large congregations because the job is by definition unfillable. Yeah, there, you, no question about the fact that you... Um, And so the one good thing um, that I had, I have no idea how Park Avenue works, but one good thing that I had at Sinai was that because Sinai had had, how do I put this delicately, they'd had trouble with rabbis in the past. Um, They had not had a successful run uh, for a while. And so when I came there, there was a lot of lay leadership that had stepped into roles that the rabbis normally filled. And for me, that was great because I said, I don't want to go to the budget committee. And they said, okay, we're happy to take care of the budget. No, you don't have to worry about that. And that was fine for me because I wasn't a budget person. And so I would say I gave gave myself different, different grades at different times, but there were certain big parts of the rabbinate that honestly, I'm not, and I'm not kidding about this, a better rabbi would have filled that I basically lopped off at the beginning of my rabbinate. And I said, budget, you need to ask me a question, ask me a question, but, um, and, uh, and I did less, I, I did much less administration than other rabbis do. Um, and, and so you, I, I think what I would say to any rabbi is, to focus on your strengths, make those strengths clear to the congregation. And if they can't live with a rabbi with those strengths and weaknesses, then it's not the right match.
0: There are a lot of discussions going on right now about rabbinical training and what makes for, you know, they're, they're made a rehaul of the West Coast conservative movement institution, the Ziegler School of Rabbinics. There are similar conversations going on in all rabbinical schools. And one of the questions is, Sort of, how much should be focused on practical rabbinics, leadership, communal networking, all those conversations? How much should just be on pure text study, pastoral skills? Otherwise, so looking, if, if you were designing a rabbinical curriculum for the rabbinate that you know, um, uh, how would you how would you think about uh, the training of
1: rabbis? Um, the Part of part of the problem is being a rabbi at a Hillel and being a rabbi at Ramah and being a rabbi at Park Avenue are not the same job and they go through the same training. And so a lot of it, just like being a lawyer or being a doctor, a lot of it has to be specialized training later, right? Because you can walk out of rabbinical school and you know nothing about running a camp. How could you know about running a camp? Um, when I walked out of rabbinical school, I didn't know how a synagogue worked. I used to call my father all the time and say, this is happening. What do I do? Um, which was very, it was nice to have a helpline, but the, what I would say for-
0: I would call my father the past president.
1: Right, (laughs) exactly. Well, that's, that actually might be wiser. Um, What I, what I used to emphasize, and this won't surprise you, and certainly those of you who knew my father, it won't surprise you. What I used to emphasize to rabbis when I would teach them, and the thing that I think is not sufficiently emphasized is what you're experiencing right now. Which is that the single most important thing about a rabbi's rabbinate is his or her voice. Not literally the voice, but most people will experience the rabbi in settings where they are speaking, where they're saying things, where they're teaching. And if you can't, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be, you know, Martin Luther King, but if you can't present ideas, If you can't communicate to somebody one-on-one when they're sad, if you can't speak in a way that is compelling to people in different situations, then you will have a very, very hard time. And I think that that's the single most important training that a rabbi could get. I think any rabbi who goes into the rabbinate, I didn't have this, but but I grew up listening to my father, so I had it. But any rabbi who goes into the rabbinate and doesn't get training in speaking, is missing a lot of what they will actually need, because you can know the Talmud backwards and forwards, and if you can't communicate what you know, it doesn't matter to your congregation that you know it. But you can know half as much, and if you can teach it in a way that catches fire, then... And so I really think the communicative faculty, the voice, is the one thing that a lot of rabbis don't have. And let me just say, Before you start running through your mind about rabbis who don't have it, which I know some of you are doing, I can see it. Um, here, here's part again, it's a structural problem. The average lawyer is okay. The average doctor can often be okay. The average public speaker is boring. And that's a problem because You want someone who can speak so that you will be compelled. And that's a fairly rare skill, unless it's trained. And so I really do think that that training is, for our communities and for the kind of congregations that you run and that I ran, that really matters. You think
0: it's trainable, or you think you're born with it? I think you get better.
1: You're born with it, like, I mean, you can't train somebody to be Mozart, but you can train them in composition. So I think that, yes, a lot of it is innate, but some of it is trained. Um, I think it would help if people read. Uh, but that seems to be a dying art. So. Right, but
0: you're also pointing out that it's a different, you know, depending on the rabbinate, that could be right, right. a pastoral voice. It could be a big pulpit voice. It could be, it could a be youth around group a campfire. voice. It could be,
1: it could be uh, by the way, my niece, who is a rabbi in Atlanta, she sings. Right? she's trained by JTS, she composes music, she sings with her guitar, and when I see her like use her voice in a very different way, believe me, I'm never gonna play a guitar and sing in a campfire, but that's compelling too. It's just, you have to find whatever your metier is, whatever your means of communication is that's effective. Um, but otherwise, you know, especially now, especially when you're watching online, if you're not compelled by the, by the message, change the channel.
0: So you and I live in bubbles. You on the west side of LA, I'm here on the Upper East Side. And the rest of American Jewish life isn't doing so well. Synagogues in general, um, and even large synagogues. Um, what, what, what do you see happening? What do you see the transformations that have happened? And I know prophecy is no longer right. you know, right. active, but um what what are the structural transformations that you've seen um, in how synagogue life works, and what what are your worries?
1: So uh, I have all the same worries that we all do. Um, I, I would say that the biggest change um, is that, people demand a much more intimate experience than people wanted when I was growing up or when I first took over Sinai. Then sitting in a congregation with 800 other people in a fixed pew and being an audience was satisfactory. But I cannot imagine a 23 year old walking into my sanctuary and looking and saying, this is my spiritual home, right? because he or she wants a more intimate experience and i think the extent to which the jewish and and i say this by the way i I hope that by now you've heard enough to know that i'm speaking against my own type right it's not the way i was trained or the way i work but i do think it's what people need and so if i were like if i if i were offering prophecy what i would say is instead of not or either instead of large synagogues or in large synagogues, what you need to offer are small, what, what the sociologist Peter Berger called mediating structures. You need small, intimate, communal, like wrote, things that, where people feel like they have a close connection with the people around them, and, um, and they share something both deep and transcendent. Uh, without that, I don't think that um, the the somewhat arid and formal Judaism that most of us grew up with will survive.
0: I'm going to ask uh, one or two more questions, but then we're going to open it up for uh, the last part of our session for questions from the community. Uh, one of the structural questions that I've spoken about and been pushing my community about is... Um, not just the structure of synagogues, but back to the question of the rabbinate of developing young talent to enter into the rabbinate, whether that's Jewish education, broadly speaking, Jewish communal service, um, or the clergy formally as rabbis and cantors, and the numbers are not good. Uh, The numbers entering into the West Coast Institution, into the, uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary, into all rabbinical schools, actually independent of denomination, um, no one's just, you know, you know, living large right now. People are not going into the rabbinate as, you know, I don't know what your class size was, but mine was, I think about 40 um, students. It, it was a large class. Um, how, how, how do we counter this? How, how, how do we seed um, uh, future uh, would-be uh, rabbinic leaders and Jewish educators? Or, or first, perhaps, diagnose maybe what might be happening and then...
1: Well, part of um, it, I think part of it is that ta- I mean, talent has a lot more avenues now than it did. Um, that's one thing. But also because we don't, we don't do what you're doing, which is most rabbis don't talk up being rabbis. Um, and they say, look, they, as I just did, these are all the things that make it difficult to be a rabbi. Um, Which is true, but also I I think that for a talented young person, there is not a life that they could possibly lead that would be more meaningful and fulfilling. And I don't think that most of us give that message often enough, but it's really true. Um, I, I mean, the things that you. Look, rabbis receive more chizuk, more encouragement, more reinforcement in a day than the average corporate lawyer will receive in their lifetime really and that's i mean in some ways by the way i want you to know that's an ego danger right because in some ways you can't take it seriously because if you do then you'll start to believe it but in another way what people are saying to you is your presence matters and I know so many young people who, whose deepest despair, once you peel away all the other layers, is that they don't matter. And they don't know what to do that will make them matter. And a rabbi matters. Even rabbis that have struggles in small congregations or in, you know, you do a funeral and you've mattered forever. Do you know how many people tell me, your father did this, your father did that. I remember when your father said this. I remember when your father said, I mean. He mattered, made a huge difference in a lot of lives. And, and so if you, uh, what I would say is that we, we need to, we need to encourage people who are young to appreciate the fact that this is one way of creating a meaningful life, which is ultimately what we all want to do. Uh, and I, I think we haven't done that well, which is a shame, but we should, Uh, we should
0: do it better thank you thank you do we have any questions here for uh from anyone present and harzine people get first uh first pick if you want one um okay so let's uh uh jimmy yes
1: first of all thank you for coming and um and thank you for
0: mentoring a fantastic rabbi young people Is there a uh, a desire for spirituality, is there a thirst for spirituality amongst young people where we can provide them with um, guidance and the richness that Judaism provides? And many sermons I've heard you give, take our ancient history and Bring it to relevance today, and I think that young people are thirsty for that. But you guys, have, you know, learn much more
1: about that. Than so there learned. are there are meditation retreats, there are small communities and synagogues, there are camps. There, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways that the Jewish community is trying to meet that need. Um, part of the part of the shift in perception that I think is required is that those kids grew up in synagogues that didn't address that. And so they're predisposed to assume the Jewish community can't address that. But in fact, we do all the time, every day. I mean, you know, I I was just in Israel where there is, no, I did not participate in what I'm about to tell you, but in Israel, there is a huge and burgeoning psychedelic community that is seeking spirituality through Kabbalah and psychedelics. Um, you, th- there is almost no spiritual quest that you won't find in our tradition. And it's all there just for the seeking.
0: Uh, Barbara, please. Um, how did your illnesses inform your rabbinic skills in general and pastoral skills in particular? And how can you develop empathic skills, an empathic skill
1: set, in rabbis who have been blessed with health and have never experienced loss? It's a great question. Um, so I want to say, first of all, I want to make, I want to start with the externals because they actually prove to be, in some ways, even more important. When I, before I had cancer, okay, I had a brain tumor, and I had a, a seizure, and a brain tumor. And then I had a couple brain surgeries. And then later on I got lymphoma and I had chemotherapy. My daughter, used to say to me, how come every time you get sick, you lose your hair? Um, but I came back. So here's the biggest difference. Honestly, the biggest difference was after I got sick, when I walked into the hospital, the person in the bed almost, I heard this a thousand times would say to me, Rabbi, you know what it is to be here. So it didn't matter if I changed at all. It was the knowledge that I knew what they were going through. That, and, and one of the things I learned was when you say that someone's in the hospital, but they're gonna be released, and you go, oh, fine, like everything is okay, that just being in the hospital is in and of itself a terrible thing. Also, by the way, I learned, which, which everyone should know and too few people know, that there is, there's just no creature on earth more wonderful than a good nurse. No, nothing, nothing in the world. And, and the converse, Um, but, (laughs) but, um, but I think what I, I, I suppose what, what age does, and you can't accelerate this process, or illness does, and that's the one accelerator other than age, is it gives you a sense of your own fragility. And because of that, when you see other people, not just when they're sick, but even when they're angry, um, when they're unkind, you know, like you may be angry, you may be unkind, but underneath it, like you're fragile, just like me. And God knows what you've gone through or what you're scared of or what you're denying or what you won't admit to yourself. And so I'm not gonna, to the extent that it is possible to not be reactive, I'm not going to be reactive. Um, and that, this helps with that a lot. And one of the things that I've learned in the rabbinate, that, that again, everyone knows it because you don't learn things. You know, it's like a, the, the French philosopher, André Gide began a lecture by saying, um, everybody knows what I'm about to say, but you all forget, so I must repeat it again. And that's true with what I'm about to say. We all know this, but we have to repeat it. I can't tell you how many times somebody, especially online has said something angry to me I will respond non-angrily and their next message won't be angry. It won't. I haven't answered that. I haven't necessarily satisfactorily answered them. I just didn't get angry back. Um, And so I think that the constant consciousness of our fragility is a really deep blessing. It allows you to be more forgiving of yourself and of others.
0: Thank you. Great question. Um, I have uh, one more question for you um, that I want to tell by way of a joke that I have said to my community one too many times, which is the story of the, the rabbi, the priest, and the minister who are on the radio show, and it gets to the time for the last question. And the question that the uh, commentator asks is, um, it, should it be the case that at the end of your days and you're lying there in wake and two of your congregants walk by your body, Um, what would you like one to say about the other? And the minister says, should it be the case that two of my congregants are walking by, um, I would like one to say to the other that he ministered to our needs, he was led by a caring heart, and he was an example of that to our entire community. And then it's a time for the priest, and the priest says, should it be the case that two of my congregants are walking there by my body in wake, I'd like one to turn turn to the other and say that he loved the Lord Jesus, um, he brought that faith to the community, and he modeled that for all of us. And then it's a rabbi's turn, and the rabbi says, should it be the case that my body's lying there and my two congregants are walking by, I would like one to turn to the other and say, I think he's moving. <laughs> um, so, Rabbi Wolpe, 25 years concluding your rabbinate at, uh, at uh, um, where a Sinai Temple, where I grew up. Um, what would you like them to have to say about your rabbinate at
1: Sinai temple? Um, so I don't, I, don't want them, I don't want people to say he did the best he could, because when people say that, I, nobody does the best they can. I can give you a thousand times when I didn't do the best I could, right? Um, sometimes I, 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 I will tell you a trade secret because I know this is just between us. A couple of times I've I've sat down next to, after giving a sermon, I have sat down next to my colleagues who are now taking over for me, um, Rabbi Sherman and Guzik, and I said, that was product, as in, you know how certain things are just, they're manufactured. In other words, I knew I didn't give that sermon. It wasn't the best I could do. Um, And in fact, I remember my father saying to me, And this was another very wise thing. He said, you can skimp on anything except a eulogy. He said, you don't give a good wedding talk. They're married. You don't give a good sermon. You give a sermon next week, but they will never forget what you say when their father is buried. And he, and so I never have. And I, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, but I I hope that they would say, I, I don't know that I aspire to them saying more than he did a lot of good um, because I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not, um, I don't think that that's a small goal. Uh, I, I know that I would say, here's the other, the other thing that I hope for is something that I hope for that I, that I have had myself, which is that I hope in years to come, like in 40 years, in 50 years, someone will pull my daughter aside and say, you know what your father did that was really nice as someone did tonight. Where are you? Uh, Larry Kaplan. There you are. Someone who just, who did that about my father just recently. Um, I, I, that's what I want more than anything else is I want the people that I love that I leave behind to hear that I did good things for the people that were here. Um, and, and maybe some fun stories, too. I'll tell you one fun story, so we should close with something. You know that when you do a wedding, you have to own the ring that you give to your bride or to your groom. It has to belong to you, right? Otherwise, you can't get married with something that's borrowed. So about, people are always coming up to me and selling, telling me, you know, your father married me. And I try to, to look surprised. But it happens often enough that I go, "Oh, it's very nice. Someone, so someone came up to me like five, six years ago, said, you know, your father married me. Said, lovely. Um, lovely. He said, can I tell you what your father did at my wedding? I thought, uh oh, what <laughs> did my father do at your wedding? I said, sure. He goes, we got under the chuppah. We couldn't find the ring. We looked all over. We did not have a ring. And there we were like the guests, the band, the chuppah, the rabbi. So your father took off his ring and he said to me, I give this to you. It now belongs to you. You may keep it. If at the end of the wedding, you choose to give it back to me, (laughs) then you may give it back to me. And the worst part of that story is that he told me this after my parents had both passed away. I never got to ask my father or my mother, did he come home and tell my mother what he did (laughs) with the wedding ring? I don't know. Um, but like, you know, those kinds of things are inestimably precious. So if I leave, if they say he left behind a lot of good and a lot of stories, I'll be I'll be happy wherever I am.
0: Well, Rabbi Wolpe, I happen to know and be related to an awful lot of members of your community. <laughs> I and I can tell you um, uh, with absolute certainty that you have done an incredible amount of good for the community you serve. You have done an incredible amount of good for the American rabbinate as a whole, and may you continue to do good into the years ahead. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, beck of show, Hallelujah, Hallelujah.